You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Still the same Welcome to episode 308 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, I'll be your moderator today. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and I'm coming at you from Sandy Springs, Georgia, uh, just one floor down from my husband, Michael Farmer, uh, who is, because he is one floor up from me, also in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And joining the two of us is David Grubbs, professor of English at Houston Baptist University, How's it going today, Michael and David? <laughs> Pretty good. We're good. I, I am in a ground floor room, um, in case anyone is wondering about my relative elevation. I like the idea that there might be a town somewhere where city limits changes based on how far up you go in a building. That would be, that sounds like a Jorge Luis <laughs> Borges story. I was going to say it uh, sounds like an eerie Indiana uh, episode, which is marking myself pretty seriously as a 90s kid. The so most Borgesian of American television. Probably <laughs> true. Excellent. Uh, before we jump into today's episode topic, which is Christina Rossetti's Advent poems, uh, let's talk about what's new on the network. Sure, we've got uh, yet another new core curriculum. We're still making our way through uh, Homer's Odyssey. We have, uh, by, by the time you hear this, there will have been a new Christian feminist podcast on Squirrel Girl. Uh, everything on our calendar is just Danny recording episodes of Sectarian Review. I don't know how he has the time <laughs> to record all these or when they're going to be posted, but at least at some point before Christmas, there'll be an episode of Sectarian Review on Ebenezer Scrooge. Cool, cool. That's fun and seasonal. Right, and I know that he is also doing an episode on alternative Christmas movies. Um, but again, he doesn't. He puts his recording times on the network calendar, but he doesn't put uh, the posting dates. So I don't know. I don't know when those are airing, but they'll air eventually. There are, there are going to be plenty of sectarian reviews coming up. I can tell you that he's recording those like it's his job. <laughs> well, I think once he gets free time, he always has about a dozen ideas that are just sort of hanging out in the wings, waiting for an opportunity. That's true. In fact, I, I recorded a, a sectarian review last Saturday with my father, and that'll be out uh, in January. But anyway, uh, it looks like Core Curriculum and uh, Squirrel Girl on CFP and then whatever Danny's got cooked up are the only things this week. There's not a, um, there's not a profile, so we've run out of books. All right. Well, at least we have some interesting and, and rangy topics coming up for everybody then. All right, thanks. 
So as I said earlier, um, it is because it is this season of Advent, we're going to talk about some Advent-themed poems today, uh, all by the same author, Christina Rossetti, one of my favorite poets. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about her today. And before we dive into the poems themselves, uh, just for anyone who is uninitiated, I wanted to talk a little bit about who Christina Rossetti was and a little bit about her work. Um, she is born in 1830 to the poet and political exile Gabrielle Rossetti and his wife, Frances Polidori, who is trained as a royal governess and uh, is a scholar and educator. Um, and you know that she's good at her job because they have four children, all of whom become uh, scholars and artists of some note. Uh, Maria Francesca, who's born in 1827. Uh, Gabriel Charles Dante, who wrote under the name Dante Gabriel Rossetti, you've probably heard of him, in 1828, William Michael in 1829, and Christina herself in December 1830. The Rossetti's privilege education in their children, and uh, we know this because they play this really cool game when their kids uh Burim, I think it's pronounced in Italian, uh, spelled B-O-U-T-S-R-I-M accent E-S. Uh, and in this game, two, they pair off and two of them would race to compose a sonnet conforming to a set of line endings that the third person provided them. And then they would round robin around and around in a circle. Uh, Christina was the family champion of this game, much uh, apparently to the chagrin of her brothers. And this is the kind of family that the Rosettis have and how their kids grow up. So it's not surprising to know. Uh, it's not surprising uh, to hear that they raise a family of, of scholars and poets when this is what they're doing with their free time. Um, another thing I want to mention about their family life is that uh, their parents are caught up in the Oxford movement in London in the 1840s. So they're going through this religious shift from uh, a more evangelical orientation to a more Anglo-Catholic orientation. And I think when we dive into the poems, you can feel um, Christina, who is the most religiously devout of the four siblings, uh, you can kind of feel her going through that transition, uh, which will be interesting for us to discuss, I think. Uh, and the last thing I want to point out is that if you learn anything kind of in, in standard survey courses or uh, or history classes about Christina Rossetti and particularly her close relationship to uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, you often hear that uh, she is not included in the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, this group of artists and thinkers that he leads and organizes and is the most famous member of um, the rest of their family is also involved in this movement. Uh, William, their brother, who is an editor and literary critic, is kind of the official memoirist of the pre-Raphaelites. Um, but Historians of Christina Rossetti have actually noted that she opts out herself. She chooses not to be involved in the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And in fact, 
um, forbids them to read her poetry if she's not present at the meetings. So uh, that's an interesting uh, thing that I have learned in recent years is that typically the party line is they're not letting her play their games, whereas uh, historians kind of now note that she chooses to to remove herself from the narrative, as it were. Um, and I've talked too long about that, so I won't um, go through the biography anymore. But let's uh, let's do some context. Um, as I said, we're talking about Advent poems. And before we talk about the poems, I thought it would be a good idea to spend a little time talking about the season of Advent. Uh, typically, we use that term to refer to the four weeks before Christmas and Typically, those four weeks are observed as a season of anticipation. It's about looking forward both to the birth of the infant Christ and to his eventual second coming. Um, what are the two of you, what's your experiences with the season of Advent? Is it something that you observe growing up, um, either in your immediate family or in your church and if you did, uh, what did you do to observe it? David, you go first. Sure. We uh, – I, I don't ever recall having obs- observed it by by name, um, you know, other, other than the sort of general anticipation of the, you know, broadly conceived Christmas season, which seems to begin – you know, it used to – you know, sort of politely keep itself in the trail of Thanksgiving, and now it seems to anticipate even Halloween. Um, but you know, that's the way it is. Uh, I, so th- there was always a period in my life growing up in which looking forward toward to um, to Christmas and uh, a a, prepa- a preparation also for uh, the the theological significance of Christmas, um, what Christmas means to, to Christian uh, belief and worship. Um, that was part of life, but it wasn't called Advent. It wasn't restricted or, or focused necessarily in that four-week sequence. Um, there were no candles. Uh, so um, I'm trying to remember when the first time that I was exposed to that would have been. Um, it might have actually been in graduate school when I encountered uh, the Catholic homilies of Alfred of Insham, who arranges his homilies by the liturgical calendar. And so I actually had to dig in and clarify um, what some of that rhythm was just so that I could figure out how to navigate his book. Uh, David, did we not talk about his Advent sermons last year for – it wasn't our Christmas episode, but it was this episode last year, the episode right before our Christmas episode. I think I think that is um, that that sounds right. That sounds right. Uh, so I, I, I've got for for whatever reason the sequences of of the traditional liturgical calendar um, are synced up in my head in um, in an old English <laughs> uh, sort of way. Um, so whenever whenever I think of you know what's the feast what season are we in um, I'm thinking of where am I in the Catholic homilies which uh, is sort of a weird way and probably not necessarily the way that Alfred would have preferred 
Um, but, you know, I sort of get in through the back door or something like that. Um, when I moved to Athens uh, to work on my Ph.D. at the University of Georgia, um, began attending Redeemer Presbyterian Church downtown, and they observe um, they observe Advent. And so uh, that uh, that element was was introduced to me in in terms of the, the actual forms of worship that I was engaging in um, in that season of preparation for uh, the coming of the Lord. So so that was something I was exposed to eventually. And now I'm at a Baptist church that um, that also observes uh, Advent and uh, with candles and readings and the therm the, ser- the the sermon is themed to the day and all the rest of it so yeah now it's pre- now it's now it's pretty much part of the of the grub's normal um but it was not growing up interesting thanks uh michael how about you yeah me neither we um we we certainly did not celebrate Advent in my family. We put up the Christmas tree and stuff uh, the day after Thanksgiving, and I I think we mostly just considered December to be Christmas time, uh, which I guess means that we were following the uh, the American commercial calendar rather than the, the church calendar. And so I was I was not aware that Advent was a thing that people did until uh, till relatively later in, in college, probably. And I wasn't aware of its full scope, what it was really all about, until uh, even later than that. How about you, Victoria? That's really interesting to hear you both say that it, it wasn't... Um that it wasn't even present in your church services growing up. Cause for me, um, I've, I've always been super attracted to, um, liturgical rhythms and the only place that liturgical rhythms existed, um, other than Easter in the Baptist church I grew up in was Advent. Um, it was when all the decorations changed in the sanctuary, um, that we used the, the wreath of candles and I liked those things. But the thing that made me love Advent the most as a child is that it was the only time that I remember um, growing up in the church that children were allowed to hold the big Bible that everyone read from and read from it. And so huh. as, a ki- as a kid, that really stuck out to me as like, we're um, we're participating in, uh, as we called it when I was a child, big church. Uh, that we were an actual part of the the important part of the service um, as children, and that was the only time um, that that happened, like with the adults in the center of the big sanctuary with the big Bible on the lectern and stuff. Interesting. Um, families would go up and read the scripture together, but they would usually trade off and. Um, as far as I remember, if you knew how to read, you could you could read part of it, and that always um, seemed like a big deal to me as a kid. I don't think uh, my church did Advent um, candles. I, I don't think so. Maybe they did. They had a yeah. Christmas um, tree. Really, in your Baptist church? Yeah, I remember when they when they got it, and I still don't really understand the difference between a Christmas tree and a Christmas tree, other than the Christmas trees. Uh, ornaments are all explicitly religious. Right. I don't know if that counts as part of Advent or not. 
that's interesting. And my family did uh, have an Advent calendar, though we we didn't um, celebrate Advent terribly religiously in my immediate family. Um, my mother had this great uh, quilted Advent calendar that had little pockets for all the days, and um, she would put little toys or, or ornaments in the little pockets, and that's how we would count down the days to Christmas. So it was an Advent calendar, but we didn't really use it in a religious way. I think I knew about Advent calendars, but I thought of them as like countdown to Santa. Sure, which is God basically what which... they are now, right? God forgive me. <laughs> the uh, the beer Advent calendar, the cheese Advent calendar, or some of the yes. even more adult ones that I won't go yeah, into I, here. I... I get a thousand uh, advertisements every year for like advent calendars made of nail polish and lipstick and wine. Yeah. Okay. So now that we have uh, that out of the way, let's dive into some poems. Uh, I want to talk about them as a unit first. We're going to discuss three poems today, um, Advent 1851, Advent Sunday, and Sunday Before Advent. Um but first, let's talk about what they say together. Uh, how do these three poems talk about Advent, and how do they talk about how believers should act during the season of Advent, Michael? Well, if you are accustomed to thinking ad- of Advent as a prelude to Santa Claus, uh, you will probably be very confused by these three Advent poems, which do not reference Christmas at all, and there's a good reason for that, uh, which is that Advent is not so much about looking forward to Christmas as it's about looking forward to the second coming, to the end of time, and and Christmas, the, the kind of wait for Christmas is a is a version of that, you know. So so when you're waiting for Christmas, you're waiting for Christ to come the first time, as it were, as it were, and and also you're waiting for Christ to come the second time, and and these poems definitely privilege that uh that second that second meaning of advent really the more important meaning of advent so it is these poems are very very much about focusing on the last things and um and and kind of making sure that you're ready for what's going to happen to you when you die or if you if you outlive the world what's going to happen to you when the world uh turns over uh and I think you see that very clearly in this in the poem uh, Sunday before Advent, where where the, the last stanza, while earth shows poor, a slippery rolling ball, and hell looms vast, a gulf unplumbed, unspanned, and heaven flings wide its gates to great and small, the end of all things is at hand. So you you have Advent as this time when the boundary between earth and what's beyond earth is even more uh, even thinner than it normally is. And you become very aware of it and you start thinking about your eternal destination, which is why it's so funny, uh, the idea that you would have an advent calendar made of cheese or beer, because what your advent calendar really should be made of is things that require you to think about hell. So maybe if it was Limburger cheese or something like that, something something <laughs> that would cause you to mortify your flesh, uh, that would be a more appropriate uh more appropriate advent calendar for these Rossetti poems. Yeah, I, I do. I find those, uh, those super indulgent advent calendars, I think particularly not exactly offensive, but just like distasteful, uh, 
because I I do as many people do uh, try to fast from something during Advent as a way to call to mind uh, the the mortification of the flesh that you were talking about and also the the idea of our smallness and our mortality in relationship to something like the second coming. So I'm glad that you um, emphasize that here because I think that is kind of the, the most important thing to know when, when thinking about these Advent poems as a whole. Well, and by the way, if you want to do a countdown of indulgent things, there is the 12 days of Christmas. Like, like <laughs> there's something built into the church calendar where you can do that. You know, if you wanted to have a 12 days of Christmas wine calendar or cheese calendar or beer calendar or whatever, decadent chocolate calendar, all the better. That's a time when you're supposed to be celebrating. But Advent, as Rossetti knows, is a time when you are supposed to be, um, at the very least, waiting quietly and maybe denying yourself you know the orthodox church has a lent for advent they they have they have a a full i think it's 40 days for the orthodox church feast or fast from uh meat and dairy uh the the catholic church tends to emphasize almsgiving instead but uh nothing's keeping you from fasting for advent and uh you know i i victoria already spilled the beans that we do uh, and so I, I recommend it. And then you can go wild in those 12 days of Christmas. Uh, and, and we also do that, it should be said. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Like last year, I gave Victoria a series of birds over the 12 days of Christmas. No, he did not. That is a joke. Though it is not a particularly humorous one. <sighs> Did you teach one of those birds how to leap like a lord? <laughs> I, I was always confused about the twelve lords of leaping. Do you like? Are you just paying them for their time so that you can demonstrate? They can demonstrate <laughs> how far a human being can leap, or like, do you actually own the lords? Uh, You've abducted them. This is a this is a dark scenario if you start unpacking it. I'm sorry, Victoria. Let's go back to Advent. <laughs> This is what her life is like, 24 hours a day. Uh, David, do you have anything to add to Michael's discussion of all three poems? They are emphatically devotional. Uh, they yes. are requiring the, uh, the reader to uh, enter uh, it, it is in either a a a plural first first person, well a plural first person us, uh, we 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 we, um, is you know the, you the reader are getting pulled into the community of those who anticipate this um, this world ending arrival, uh, which in some way overlaps conceptually with that first arrival. Um, which was in its own way kind of a beginning and an ending. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's I, I I appreciate the ways that uh, you cannot distance yourself from this. It the, it just yanks you into it with the pronoun. Yeah, that's a it's a really great point and one that I hadn't uh, hadn't immediately thought of. But she does use the first person plural quite a lot in in other poems too. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Well, I'll uh, I'll let you keep uh, keep talking actually, since you've got uh, a breakdown of the first poem. Um, let's talk about Advent 1851 a little bit, which I learned uh, when I learned it as a younger person as uh, Come Thou Dost Say to Angels, the, the first line. Um, tell us how this poem works and makes meaning. Are there any pieces of language or, uh, or other poetic devices that jump out at you there, David? Well, she's playing on uh, the... The name of Advent itself uh, comes from uh, the Latin um, for for arrival or coming. Um, you know, Christ says uh, at the end of John's Apocalypse, Advenio, I, I come. Um, and so what she's done uh, in the first, um, how, first eight lines of this poem is – She's attended closely to all the places in which the Lord has said come and other times and occasions and has has sort of uh, assembled them into this uh, this theme, just, just recognizing that uh, apparently Jesus was saying this all the time or this was being said about uh, the, 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 you know, the coming Lord. Um, and so. That eight lines is this constellation of references, which I'll unpack in a little bit. The quatrain at the end, not exactly a, uh, not, not, not really a, uh, sonic quatrain, but still four lines. Uh, the last four lines are us being equipped to answer and respond. So call response is the the larger structure. So come thou dost say to angels, to blessed spirits, come, uh, come to the lambs of thine own flock, thy little ones come home. All right. So all of these references, uh, come thou dost say to angels, um, in, uh, Matthew 25. It's also in Matthew 16. This when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So you have this, uh, Jesus is getting ready to come. And so he leans down to the angels and says, come on, you guys <laughs> pack up, um, to the blessed spirits come Jude 14. Um, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesies, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. All right. So this idea that he's coming with his posse of angels and, and saints and then come to the lambs of the little flock. Um, you know, John 10, um, my sheep hear my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Um, the little ones to thy little ones come home, the voice of the Lord calling to the little ones. And then, you know, this is also, uh, you know, something that we've seen in, in the gospels. Um, uh, is it Matthew, uh, Matthew 19, let the little children come to me. Uh, the many come from the many mansioned house. The gracious word is sent, uh, probably a reference to Matthew 22. When in, in a parable, um, the father of the groom sends out people into the streets saying, I prepared a dinner. Oxen and fatted calves are slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Um, and then come from the ivory palaces unto the penitent. 
When does Jesus say, come to the penitent? Well, Matthew 11, come to me, all who are all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so there's this double valence of I'm coming to you. You come with me. So so the, the Lord coming, but then also the Lord inviting you come to me. All right. Uh, so having having voiced the word of the Lord, uh, the last four lines, O Lord, restore us, deaf and blind, unclose our lips, though dumb, then say to us, I will come with speed, which he does in Revelation 22. I come soon, I come quickly, and we will answer, come, uh, as, as does uh, the Spirit and the churches uh, in Revelation 22, say, come, Lord Jesus. So... The last four lines show this, uh, the Lord is not coming because we called him. He called first. All right. Um, and in fact, there is a working. Uh, the Lord restore us deaf and blind. So restoration of hearing in order to hear his voice saying, I come with speed. And then the opening of our lips so that we can respond. Um, yeah. It's cool. Uh, I love that you've sort of covered the, the microcosm and the macrocosm there, that the poem itself is a call and response, um, largely, and then the call and response are, are literally enacted in the, in the final stanza. Um, and something that, uh, I don't think you mentioned that is is worth uh, pointing out that reinforces your point is the the rhyme scheme and and the way the lines interlock kind of reinforces that uh, call and response feel too. Could you talk some about the, the prosody there? Because I I am I am rusty in in unpacking those things. Uh, well, it's it's not a, a super even rhyme scheme, but the uh, second and fourth lines in each stanza um, are are end rhymed with each other. Okay. Uh, and so there's like a not not an entire interlocking structure, um, as we'll see uh, in another poem. But it, there's there's a bit of it that I think does reinforce. Um, the response, the kind of reciprocity that you're unpacking. So that's cool. Um, Michael, do you have anything to say about Come Thou Dost Say to Angels? Yeah, just just the fact that it is a reversal of what you would expect, right? Because in an Advent poem, you would expect us to be telling Christ to come, and what we get instead for most of the poem is Christ telling us to come. And then, uh, as David pointed out, we we can say come only in response to him. And I mean, obviously, this is all playing on uh, Revelation 22, where uh, where I, I had remembered it being uh, John and the church calling Christ to come, and that is what it is. The Spirit and the Bride say come, and let the one who hears say come. But but even John doesn't say that until already in 22:12. Uh, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, so I really like the idea that even Advent, even the waiting we're doing is a response uh, rather than something active. Or it's an active response, but it, it, it happens only after, um, only after we've been asked to do something. You can only, you can only wait for Christ uh, when you've already come to him. And so there's a, there's a kind of dialectic of presence and absence going on in the poem as well. Yeah, those four lines are a really great unpacking of what the spirit and the bride means. Yeah. Wow, that's really uh, a really interesting point. Thanks. Uh, so the second poem that we're covering today, um, Advent Sunday, is one of my very favorite Christina Rossetti poems, and one that uh, people don't really discuss a lot. Uh, Christina Rossetti has a reputation, um, she sort of ha had a Christian feminist reputation before people really used that term. Uh, she's known for kind of genre bending in that, as David said, she wrote a lot of super devotional poetry, um, but a lot of that super devotional poetry also has a bent towards the progressive or the boundary pushing. Um, I think Advent Sunday does that a bit. Uh, Michael, can you tell us what's going on in Advent Sunday, and does it read differently than uh, the poem we just discussed, Advent 1851? I'm not sure that I would call it um, progressive, so I'm going to let you make that argument. But what I notice it doing is kind of, meditating in an extended way on the metaphor of the bride um, for the for the church, which, as we just discussed, is very important, uh, very important for Advent because it's very important in uh, Revelation 22. So you have here, um, first she talks about when this might happen, which could be any time, right? Uh, it could be at the midnight, it could be at dawn, uh, she doesn't say it could be at noon, but presumably it could be at noon. You never hear about people talking about the second coming happening at like 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, which is when I would least expect it because I'm very tired at 2.30 in the afternoon. Anyway, uh, it, whatever time this happens, the bride is, or bridegroom is going to come to fetcheth home the bride. Uh, and, and she knows his body. His hands are hands she knows. She knows his side. So she knows him in this kind of mystical way through the crucifixion, through Christ's suffering. And then comes the, the kind of variations. So she's referred to Rebecca at the appointed place. Rebecca is uh, Isaac's, uh, Isaac's wife. I, I, now that I've said that, I feel like it's wrong. No, you're right. Okay, yeah. Rebecca's Isaac's wife, and she's waiting for him at the well. So she's waiting for this man who is going to fulfill her destiny and also invite her into the covenant, right? Which is the, the fulfillment of the covenant is going to be Christ's second coming. So the church is like Rebecca. The church is also like great Queen Esther in her triumphing. She triumphs in the presence of her king. And that's, a, that's an odd one, right? I mean, on, on the one hand, she's picking figures from the Hebrew Bible who are women, and there aren't that many of them. But Esther is interesting because Esther is not married to a Israelite. Esther is married to the king of Persia, um, a, a kind of scary figure. And yet she's given all this authority 
in that book. And so we have the bride who is not like the bridegroom and yet who gets to triumph, who's given the kind of authority that Esther is given. This, this, she, she has the ear of the king, maybe is the best way to say that. And then um, her, his eyes are as a dove's and she's dove-eyed. He knows his lovely mirror, sister, bride. He speaks with dove voice of exceeding love, and she with love voice of an answering dove. Um, that, that strikes me as a very Victorian uh, construction, and it's kind of cute in its way, but also I like it. Uh, this notion that Christ is a dove who speaks with love, and the bride, the church, is love that speaks like a dove. And so th- there's this kind of fitting together that happens there. Um, which it, itself is kind of a marriage image. These these two things that are alike yet different come together and are made one as the church shall be made one with Christ at the end of all things. And, and, and then at the end of the poem, the only thing left to do is repeat what happened at, at, the, at the beginning because, again, we are... Um, we are anticipating this happening. It hasn't happened yet. And so that repetition of this is going to happen is always necessary, always necessary again. And, and, and that's the lesson of Advent, right? It's cyclical. We do this every year. We wait for the second coming. We wait and we wait and we wait. And eventually we will wait no more. But for the time being, we're still waiting. Victoria, what am I leaving out? Uh, so the, the first thing I would say is... Uh, you called um, you called the way that the bride knows Christ mystical. I would say it's the opposite of that. I would say like the the thing that makes one of the things that makes me excited about this poem um, is how much it is about bodies. Um, she she knows his hands and she knows his side um i mean references to the cleansing power of the crucifixion but that idea of knowing is a physical knowing and she knows sort of the um the parts of his body there's an intimacy there that i i think uh needs to be emphasized um you talked about sort of esther being a, a powerful um and an active figure and I would argue that there's a bit of that um, in Rebecca as well um, just in in terms of the the Jacob and Esau uh, story and and her place within it right um, she's sneaky. so there's well I I'm not sure that's a negative thing no I, I, I didn't weird. I didn't mean that it was um, but bo- both uh, both Rebecca and Esther are are notably um, intellectual and, and notable because they do exercise a lot of agency. Um, so I, I think that's important that uh, not only do we get two um, women from the Bible called out by name here, um, but it's it's two women who are particularly um, filled with agency. Uh, and then when you get the dove after that, the dove is is most closely associated with the Holy Spirit in the Bible, right? But we get um, we get this association not just with powerful historical biblical women, um, but also uh, this part of the Trinity that is often referred to as 
the most uh, feminine or feminized part of the Trinity, too. So this poem, I think, does a lot of work to uh, center the experiences of women um, on top of it just being a central uh, feminine metaphor in terms of the Bride of Christ. I think it, it kind of shores up that metaphor with um, extra feminine or feminized things in a way that's super interesting to me. I, I, the reason I, I call the church's knowledge of Christ mystical is because the body you're talking about is not a body that most of us have ever seen, and yet we know it. So it is physical, but the, our knowledge of it is not physical. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, but there still is a sensuality in the way that it's, it's expressed. Yes, ab- absolutely. Yeah, I didn't I didn't mean to suggest it I was did. non-physical. It's it's our non-physical knowledge of a physical thing. Mm-hmm. So, Song of Solomon, I guess. Sure. Is is the thing to go here? Yeah, um, I, I think that vibe is, is, is certainly present. I'm pretty sure the uh, the being dove-eyed thing is, uh, is from Song of Solomon, uh, and certainly dove language is Song of Solomon. Right, that's true. So um, not that the valence of the spirit isn't there. Um, in fact, the spirit, the... The bride's voice is spirit actuated in the one that we just saw, so I would not be surprised to, to see some some kind of valence brought in there. Um, but it's Song of Solomon five two. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. All right, or Song of Solomon five twelve. His eyes are like doves, beside streams of water. Um, uh, so. Yes, the both are both refer to each other as as the dove in in the Song of Solomon. Hmm. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, in his On Loving God, has a uh, chapter in which he talks about the soul um, contemplating um, the love of the beloved, and he refers to the soul throughout this passage um, with a feminine pronoun talking about the pangs of love that the church feels. Um, and the, the language that she uses, she beholds King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals. She sees the soul begotten of the father bearing the heavy burden of the cross. She sees the Lord of power and might bruised and spat upon. Um, he goes on for a while contemplating this, the sword of love pierces through her soul and she cries aloud, aloud, stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples for I am sick with love. A quote from song of Solomon. So, uh, there's this later, this discussion of, of Christ's hands and the, the embrace of the hands of Christ, uh, is, is language that he picks up on. Um, also from song of Solomon, so, uh, you know, I, I would, I would, she might be disavowing the pre-Raphaelites, but I, I think she's definitely getting some getting medieval in some ways. Um, the last thing where 
they become mirror images of each other. Lovely mirror, sister bride. I wrote a paper a really, really, really long time ago in grad school um, about John Donne's The Good Morrow and his Good Friday writing westward. Um, and just two lines in it. Uh, the last stanza in Good Morrow, my face and thine eye, thine and mine appears, and true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Right, Sort of the way that each appears in each other's eye, um, becoming mirror images of each other in this kind of lover's gaze. And then in uh, Good Friday 1613, writing westward, uh, the last lines, restore thine image so much by thy grace that thou mayest know me and I'll turn my face. Um, again, this idea that uh, the the soul, the, the, uh, repent, the penitent soul in this Good Friday poem um, longs for Christ's image to be restored in his face so that his face is now recognizable to Christ. Um, uh, and that, that mirroring, that transformation of the bride, um, into the counterpart of the groom is uh, something that I think she's doing here. And it, as, as we were saying in the previous poem, um, that equality has to happen before the reciprocity of action has to happen in the, um, in the final stanza. So, the mirroring and, and the um, recognizing of the mirror has to happen before uh, behold the bridegroom cometh go we out with lamps ablaze and garlands round about to meet him in a rapture with a shout. So you have to kind of develop this relationship with Christ before you um, respond to his commands at the end of time. Yeah, she's remarkably consistent. This is this is cool. Yay! I'm so glad you think it's cool. I feel like no one ever talks about these poems, so I'd never uh, heard of them. I, I'd never read them before today. No, I'm I'm really impressed. I'm definitely going to read more. She's the best. I and we should say um, I I didn't really talk about the kind of uh, greatest hits of Christina Rossetti, but if if you know those, you probably know her long poem, Goblin Market, which is um, weird, <laughs> weird and wonderful. Was there not a Christian I, feminist episode about that, Victoria? I believe so. I believe we did an episode on Goblin Market. Um, probably. I probably made that happen because I, I love uh, Goblin Market. Um, but it's it's this weird fairy tale that is also... Um, a Victorian virginity indictment. Uh, very strange and and wonderful. Um, and if you if you like um, sort of metaphorical religious parables um, of the Pilgrim's Progress variety, or if you like uh, kind of darkly inflected fairy tales, uh, Goblin Market might be for you. Um, right. Uh, do we have anything else to say about Advent Sunday, or should we move to the third poem on our list, guys? Let's move along. Okay. Um, so the last poem on our list is Sunday Before Advent, uh, 
one that I always wanted to teach but never got the nerve to jump into. Um, I think it's a little different than the other two poems we talked about. Um, David, can you tell us uh, what, if anything, does it add to the general mood or the theology we've already covered today? This one has a completely different vibe. Uh, Advent 1851 and Advent Sunday both have a uh, a very positive um, Jesus is coming for his own who are looking forward to that coming. This one is this one is edgy. This one is acknowledging that uh, the coming of Christ doesn't mean the same thing for every human soul. So the end of all things is at hand. We all stand in the balance, trembling as we stand, and if not trembling, tottering to a fall. The end of all things is at hand, right? So, I mean, you, you can almost sort of see the doomsday prophet, <laughs> you know, shrieking. Yeah, uh, I, I read an article once that said um, usually – Christina Rossetti's devotional poems sound like uh, someone singing in a sanctuary, but this poem is someone screaming on the corner with a The End is Near sandwich board. Yes, yes, exactly. There's which a, is there's, one of my, my favorite things. There's a kind of nuclear sense to this poem, right? I feel like there's an atomic bomb about to drop. <laughs> which she couldn't have imagined, but yeah. Yeah, there, there, there's, there is something... There is something at hand. There is something is nigh. Um, standing in the balance, we all stand in the balance. We're all being um, weighed, all right. So there's this this image of of judgment through that. Um, gosh, older than Christianity image of of standing in a balance. Uh, I believe they have pictures of that sort of thing in Egyptian tombs. Uh, oh, hearts of men covet the unending land. Oh, hearts of men covet the musical, never uh, sweet, never-ending waters of that strand. Um, to become part of the next thing, you must desire the next thing. Right? The only ones who receive the next thing are those who desire it, who look towards that end and go, Yes, finally. Not the ones who go, oh no, wait. All right? Oh, hearts of men, covet the unending land. Covet the musical, sweet, never-ending waters of that strand. Desire, desire more than this thing that will pass. While earth shows poor, a slippery rolling ball, very Boethian. Uh, and hell looms vast, a gulf unplumbed, unspanned. So there's the there's this this place that you cannot stand, this slippery rolling ball. Um, it's not gonna it's not gonna last. You're just gonna fall off of that. And hell, well, that's what you fall into. But heaven flings wide its gate to great and small. The end of all things is at hand. Um, if you don't want to totter into a fall, as you feel yourself trembling, where is that stable place that you have to go? Um, and the the same answer that that Lady Philosophy gave to Boethius, the same answer that is given at the end of the Old English Wanderer poem is, set your heart 
on the heavenly kingdom where all where the only stability stands. Um, but this is, you know, again, this is this is apocalypse. This is the end. Um, but this is also the sort of thing that there was a doomsday prophet at the first advent. His name was John the Baptist. That's true, right? Right. He wandered around, you know, smelling like smelling like a stinky camel, eating bugs, um, and telling everyone that the axe was at the root uh, to. You know, perform deeds of repentance while you still can. Make a cut off the mountains and fill in the valleys. Yes, that's not a that's not a gentle metaphor. Yes, and and yet this poem is a circle. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's all about instability, and I'm so glad you talked about John the Baptist, and that's very important. But isn't it also very comforting that? this poem ends and starts in the same place. There's a, there's a circuity to it that I think um, at least gives us um, a, a place to stand, like you said. Yeah. There's that lovely bit in, uh, oh gosh, is it Hebrews? I think it's Hebrews uh, where the, the writer is talking about, uh, a psalm that refers back to a moment in either Exodus or Numbers in the Pentateuch uh, where Israel sins egregiously and the psalmist says, uh, do not sin as they did back then at, you know, at, when they sinned at the waters of Meribah. Um, but today, um, turn to the Lord today, repent. And this much later writer um, Hebrews, if I'm if I'm remembering rightly, quotes that Paul that that Psalm and says, "Therefore, today, and today is today. <laughs> that that today is still now, um, but there's still this sense of urgency. Uh, the, it, the poem comes back to the beginning. The world didn't end when the poem stopped, and yet there is still that urgency of today." That's cool. Hmm. And every year it cycles around again. I, I mean, I guess what I would point to in this poem is the way that the meter reflects the instability that she's talking about. It's a it's yeah. A, really, I, I want to talk about rhyme and meter. Let's let's do that. It's a really um, a, a, a really unconventional uh metrical poem for someone who I associate with a very conventional meter or very set meter let's say um i I tried to write everything down um but there's only four lines that were standard lines three eight nine and ten are all in iambic pentameter um and the rest I, I have things like unstressed beat two dactyls stressed beat I am which <laughs> is nothing right I mean what you're talking about there is nothing um so, so um, you you have this kind of chaos in the meter that is gradually resolving um, because lines eight through ten are the next to last lines and those are in iambic pentameter and then line eleven is still chaotic but it's a chaos we've seen before because it's a, a direct repeat of line four so you have this meter that is almost resolving but not quite and then the rhyme scheme is very there are very few rhymes. It's A B A B B A B A B A B. 
So you have this low number of rhymes that's giving a structure to the poem that the meter is actively refusing. So you have a world that appears to be falling to pieces, and yet, if you know where to look, um, there's something steady in it. So the, the poem ends up enacting the apocalypse that it's talking about. Pretty cool. And and then resolving it, t- tying it together, because it starts where it ends. Mm-hmm. Though it starts where it ends in that it uses that first phrase, but that very first line is in jammed. That's true, yeah. Y- yes, yeah. So it's it's sort of fill, filling in the open space or or catching back up with itself. Mm-hmm. The 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 kind of structure of this feels very Gerard Manley Hopkins to me. Yep, that's why I love it. Um, in my mm-hmm. my notes, uh, I have Hopkins question mark at the beginning and the little little hearts anyone who knows me knows that when I enthuse very deeply about something literary there are probably heart doodles involved our uh, our marginalia is very different <laughs> I, don't, I don't write a lot of hearts in my books it is so it's it's, it's especially great when we um, read the same text and, and both take notes also Victoria's That's handwriting lovely. is about ten times larger than mine just a just a peek into our married life. Whereas all of your marginalia are like French swears and going harumph. <laughs> I, we were getting rid of a book once, and I just threw it in the garbage because I had written a very rude word in the uh, in the margins, and I didn't want anybody to have it. It was Bart Ehrman. My guest strikes home. Uh, so you both mentioned that. Uh, you haven't read a lot of Christina Rossetti. Um, so I, I'd like to hear from you. What was this experience like? Uh, what was your opinion of her going into this? And uh, if indeed you had an opinion, uh, has it changed after discussing these three poems? Michael, what do you think? Um, I, I don't know that I did have an opinion. The only thing I've read besides In the Bleak Midwinter, which I haven't read so much as heard, um, is the, the poem Uphill, which is a, a kind of a catechism in allegory. I used to teach that. I would not say... I, I think of her as a devotional poet, and, um, and as such, she's not one of my favorites. I don't really like devotional poetry unless it's doing something interesting, um, which I think here, uh, Sunday Before Advent definitely is, and it, it really m- made me change the way I think about her. Uh, the other two poems fit in with my kind of preconception of who Rossetti was, this kind of devotional poet who does very metrical, very, uh, I don't want to say standard, but very regular um, poetry, and does it well, but, you know, it's not really my thing. But um, Sunday Before Advent I found really appealing and uh, kind of boundary-breaking. And so I, I really enjoyed that one. Hopefully that's not too disappointing to you, Victoria. I've never read Goblin no, Market. No, it's it's not um, not disappointing. And she is uh, quite well-known for um, her adherence to, to form and, and convention. Um, that's one of the most famous things about her. Um, and she often gets 
compared with Elizabeth Barrett Browning because uh, Browning is more emotional, but um, but Rossetti is uh, most people say more um, pays more attention to lyric and and poetic convention. Uh, in fact, uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti knew of that comparison and spoke back to it. Um, she in uh, in June 1895 uh, in the Atlantic Monthly, uh, she is the finest woman poet, he says, since Mrs. Browning by a long way. And in artless art, if not an intellectual impulse, is greatly Mrs. Browning's superior. So he says, you know, um, she might not be the smartest, but she she understands how poetry works. Uh, so I, I think, you know. That's a, a, a decent opinion, the one that you expressed. It's a one a lot of people share uh, in terms of her, her understanding of, of the technique of poetry. Um, how about you, David? Did your opinion of Rossetti change today, or did you have one before we were talking? I didn't especially have one. Um, I knew that... Uh, I, I I knew of her. Um, I've never uh, once I, once I found out that that uh, Goblin Market wasn't about Tolkien goblins. Um, uh, I never read it. Um, probably disappointed there. Maybe I should still go back and do that remedial reading. Anyways, it's super fun. It's a, okay. a really fun. Poem. I actually have avoided reading it because I assumed it was about Tolkien goblins. <laughs> That sounds that sounds on brand. Um, in ble in the bleak midwinter, I, so I, I I just hadn't really like I knew she she was out there. Um, I knew that she was uh, adjacent to well her her brother and you know William Morris and you know that that pre Raphaelite thing. Um, but for whatever reason, I just I just never really never really read her. Um, I don't think I really I don't think that I had uh, outside of in the bleak midwinter. I don't think I'd particularly known that she was a devotional poet. Um, but I love devotional poetry. Um, I love conventional poetry. I'm a very happily conventional person, um, and am down for it. Uh, finding out that it seems that she did like quite a bit of it um makes me kind of excited because it's more to do (laughs) i'm glad i'm glad to have uh brought someone in from the margins uh for both of you that's exciting to me um and unless the two of you have uh other points to make i think that brings us to the end David, you've got next week's topic. What are we talking about? More poetry. Um, this one from a really old Christmas card. Uh, the uh, Cultivation of Christmas Trees by T.S. Eliot. You know, David, weirdly, and maybe not weirdly, but Eliot is probably the person we've done more episodes on than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, when I discovered this particular poem... Um, which I uh, which I did through my colleague uh, Emily Stelzer. Um, I was 
extraordinarily excited because I'd never I'd never heard of it. Um, I, it's it's not really one of the ones that you see anthologized much. And so if you think um, if you sort of have the sense that you've read all of the Elliot um, uh, strap in, I guess. All right. That should be fun. Thanks for joining us this week, listeners. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. For Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and the absent Nathan Gilmore, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.